0: A beautiful woman. And a fool. Hey! Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 26, where we will be talking about The Keeper. Yes. The penultimate episode of series B, or season 2. This is written by Alan Pryor, returning for another script. It is directed by Derek Martinez, the second of his two episodes. Mm -hmm. The other being Trial, of course. This was first broadcast on the 27th of March, 1979. The ratings for this seven million
1: which is up a bit from gambit i think
0: yeah it's up about half a million from gambit so building towards the end of the season
1: we'll start with a a moment or two of background we've mentioned a couple of times the original brief for series b was that terry nation would write five episodes now we've seen three of them up to now and the intention was that he would then write a two-part finale we'll maybe spend a bit more time on this next time but suffice to say season two doesn't end with a two-part story And neither of the remaining episodes are written by Terry Nation. (laughs) No.
0: So I suspect that this was commissioned from Alan Pryor fairly late in the day. It it,
1: it was. So Chris Boucher wrote the single-part finale, which obviously is next time. And yes, then there was sort of an urgent replacement required, which uh, fell to Alan Pryor. Fair enough. So look, we'll crack into it. What are your initial thoughts? So
0: I've got... Two sets of comments on the initial thoughts. I want to split my opinion and just talk about the arc. In terms of my opinion, look, this has been an episode that I'll be honest. I've often skipped past if I'm doing a bit of a rewatch. Likewise, I've had very weak memories of it. I was therefore pleasantly surprised watching this for the podcast, mm-hmm. particularly in the first half. I found there was a lot of. Good material, a lot of really interesting material. There is actually really good performances in this. Yes, there are. And some really cool moments in this. That said, about the halfway mark, it does really take a turn for the worst. There is some very embarrassing stuff in this. <laughs> I think that it is a drop in quality compared to what we've had, frankly, for a lot of this season and indeed the last few episodes where we've mm. both been you know, quite enthusiastic. Me more so about voice from the past than you, but... Yep. I think that this doesn't build towards the season as well as it can. I've got more to say about the arc, but what do you think of it as an episode?
1: Similar. It's one I hadn't watched for quite a while. And yes, if I was skipping through like seven episodes, this is probably one I would bypass. And yes, like you, it was actually better than I remembered it being. And I will say the script is actually quite coherent and quite well plotted. Unfortunately, we sort of fall into that trope where medieval sort of means big hairy and shouty. Yes. Sort of, you know, almost half expecting Brian Blessed to turn up <laughs> at some point, I think. Which is a shame because there are some good performances in this. I'm going to immediately single out Send You Sona, and apologies if I've pronounced that wrong because I thought, look, it's not a big part. It's obviously the background role but he's great.
0: No, he, he is really good and there are a couple of other good moments and performances in there as well. Mm. Across all of this podcast and especially the season two episodes of Blake Seven, we've talked about Blake Seven really be one of those very first Series to have an ongoing narrative arc Mm. and and that sort of ongoing adventure and I think that and we'll talk about this more next episode I'm sure I think The Keeper is a really good example of where you can see as a narrative as a story it works in that it takes you from beat to beat to beat and you can follow a coherent plot through the season in terms of that actual I guess, modern style of really breaking down the arc beforehand and working out exactly how all the pieces fit together in a way that works, mm-hmm. this falls down a bit and it does struggle. If you're just watching this as a casual viewer, I think the arc works. You can follow a storyline, I think, as we'll discuss. It doesn't quite work if you really sort of sit down as two sad fans and break it all start down. Start and pull to
1: bits. No, and I think probably the most immediate thing is there are some fairly obvious inconsistencies between this and what we were told in Gambit. Yes. I guess, you know, look, that's probably how TV was made back then, wasn't it? So.
0: No, and given that this was obviously an emergency commission script, yes. where Alan Price clearly just been told by Chris Boucher, this is where we left the crew, we need you to get them to here. Mm. Basically, he would have said, look, can you find somebody who's met Lurgan, who's got a brain print, and at the end of it, they need to know where Star 1 is. And it does that.
1: And it does. And it is, as we said, it is quite a coherent plot. I mean, look, I think most commentators pick up on the Shakespeare influences, I think. You know, there's there's stuff there from King Lear, there's Macbeth, there's Hamlet.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. The two rival brothers who deposed their father, yep. the woman behind the throne.
1: Yeah, except in the poison chalice, just as you think you've won.
0: The role of a fool. Yeah. But yeah. even almost that great chorus that he
1: provides in some mm. ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, look, we'll crack into the actual discussion. I had this broken down as two threads because there's sort of an A and an A and a bit plot, really. Yep. I had it broken down into just the Goths and then a separate section about Servaland and Travis, which is maybe where we'll talk more about the Ark stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I also pulled out some stuff just about Avon on the Liberator specifically, so yep. maybe we'll bunch that together when we get to it as part of the other yeah. discussion.
1: So we do start in orbit and of course we get that minute or two of sort of obligatory setup for anyone who wasn't watching last week.
0: Yes, but very clearly carrying on from the character's point of view straight from Gambit. They've clearly left Freedom City and are now on their way to follow the next
1: clue. Yes, indeed. It is very much set up. We do get Avon's idea of using Star One to control the Federation rather than just smash it outright.
0: Star One is the automatic computer control centre for the entire Federation. Get to the point, Avon. That is the point. Through Star One, we could control everything. The Federation could belong to us. I could be president. Ah. Well, we could take it in
1: turns. You're ready to go, Villa? Why not? Now, that would be worth the risks we're taking.
0: Yeah, so I found Avon in this, and those scenes in particular, really interesting because I'd actually forgotten all of them. Mm. And that bit where Avon's just testing the waters with Blake and the crew, like, you know, we don't have to destroy it, we could take it over. Mm. And. If we're controlling the Federation, Blake, you can do lots of nice liberation things and I can go over here and have money and power and, you
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) And make everyone leave me alone, yes.
0: (laughs) But that's also very effective in really just cementing in the viewer's mind how powerful Star 1 is Mm. and that if any one person controlled it, they would basically control the Federation.
1: Yes, and there is that thing there that Blake can't really be seen to control it because there's always that danger that he might be corrupted. Blake is
0: afraid that power would corrupt him. That sort of power would corrupt anyone. Which is why the location of Star One has been kept such a secret. And it also leads to the conversation about the fact that they assume Travis knows where it is, Mm. and if Travis was the guy that controlled it, that would be bad.
1: Yes, that would be bad for everybody. That's right. When they initially thought control was on Earth, There's really no way you could take that and defend it and use it to control the Federation at that point. Whereas here, because it's in a mystery secret location and they're probably going to be the only people who know where it is, this is much easier to turn it to your advantage, so to speak. Obviously, Blake and Co teleport down The next beat I had really is we see Travis's ship and Avon just immediately overrides Kelly's concern that they're potentially abandoning Blake.
0: So I thought this was a really interesting combination. We don't see Avon and Kelly alone on the ship very often. And it's one of those occasions when you generally see the shifting and the ties of a balance of power between them. Mm. It starts off with Avon very much trying to dominate what happens. And Kelly pushes back but allows him to go with it because he makes the good argument. Mm. If we do this, we can get rid of Travis. And she's like, OK, that's worth doing. But as Avon pushes it further and further, Kelly pushes back against him. Yes. And in the end, Kelly actually takes control of the situation, which I thought is a good character moment for both of them and the way they work mm. together.
1: Yeah, it is, of course, the trope of taking the Liberator out of teleport range just as it's needed.
0: It is. I also like the fact that Avon is willing to be a lot more open about how nervous he is and how more cautious he is. In front of Kelly. I don't think he would do this in front of Blake. And I don't think he would have done that in front of Jenna.
1: No, probably not. You have that whole thing he wants to get as close as he can before he fires. I mean, look, we do go through. He has no objection to shooting Travis in the (laughs) back. No indication that he's seen us. Good. I have no objection to shooting him in the back. It's interesting. One probably slight... I thought was a bit silly. When the ship's transmitting, they don't make any attempt to find out what it is, who he's sending it to, because... Particularly because later they're all concerned that the Federation may come and jump them while they're just sitting in stationary orbit. But one of those things.
0: Yeah, no, look, that's true. But I mean, the plot has to get moving. And just that note of excitement on Avon's face as he closes it on Travis, that's really quite cool. <laughs> I'll note here as well, because it's an exchange, although it doesn't happen quite here narratively. I think it's part of this segment. Blake's comment to Avon that.
1: No one knows we're here. Unless you alerted them.
0: Originally, I wrote this down as being a callback to killer. Then I realised it could also be Hostage. Yes. (laughs) There's actually a couple of things. Well, I guess Hostage is
1: the other Alan Pryor script, so... That's true, actually, yeah. yeah. Moving on, look, we get, obviously, to the Ambush.
0: Yeah, that was very well directed, I thought. That was actually quite a good outdoor fight scene
1: it's funny see i didn't think it was perhaps that well cut because there are moments of people just sort of standing around obviously waiting for their cue to get involved
0: okay i at least thought that there was some different use of camera angles like people actually flying over the camera around the that's camera true, that's true actually
1: going. and look they all jump down onto the liberator crew again lots of hairy men shouting as they attack
0: but... yes carrying off jenna yeah now can i just ask a bit of a question here and i doubt there's a real answer How does a dominant life form evolve on a planet where they can't breathe above ground? (laughs) It's a science fiction thing. It's stupid, isn't
1: it? Unless they're Earth colonists who've evolved. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking. Perhaps they're Earth colonists. Mm. Although I sort of said the fight scene wasn't that well edited. I do think Michael Keating's performance when he's running away and he's scared that he's going to get captured and stuff, he really sells that.
0: Yeah, as does Blake escaping. There was a moment where I thought, Mm. oh, it's going to be the Blake's knocked unconscious and they sort of forget that he's lying there. But it doesn't go that way. It's actually quite well done. No, He
1: gets up and he gets away. And that bit is quite good where they're chasing him around finding the explosive crossbow bolts. Blake teleports back up to the ship. Now, Avon, I think at this point, is feeling quite superior after he thinks they've got rid of Travis. He makes the point that he and Callie seem to have solved one of Blake's problems and he (laughs) hopes Blake can handle the rest as easily. Mm. We had to stop Travis getting to star one first. Well, now he is stopped. If he was on the pursuit ship, it seemed a reasonable assumption. You sort of get that idea. He thinks that Blake clearly has screwed up in letting the others get captured, you know, and he had to be rescued. And he bites back. As soon as Blake has a go at him, he really snaps back. Yes, and then Blake doesn't know how to react no sort of that thing well I just killed Travis aren't you at least grateful yeah um,
0: and Blake's reaction is all well, he doesn't know how to react it's like I'm still crossing you but what yeah <laughs> the Goths have them
1: how ambush are we going down to get them out I am and where the hell were you we just got Travis for you
0: I think that one strength of the script here is it very quickly establishes what's going on. Yep. We know that Gola is the chief. We know that his sister is a mystic. He's got a fool. There are sort of medieval, hairy, savage warriors around him. Yep. Now, interestingly, I was watching a lot of the stuff with Tara and the Fool, yeah. and there's a moment just before Villa and Jenna come in where the Fool goes over and whispers something in her ear. Yeah. I wonder if that was a tip-off,
1: and that's why she does the whole... A beautiful woman and a fool are coming. Well, that's one of the notes I had. There is that question through the episode, really, of how powerful Tara actually is. Is she a mystic? Anybody could see that Gola is clearly extremely interested in Jenna.
0: Yes, you don't need to be a mystic to know that.
1: No. She is able to prophesize that Rod is coming because she's the one who sent for him. Yes. But then you have the moment where she freezes Jenna's hands. Yes. So. I don't know whether that's just outright hypnotism.
0: Yeah, so I actually took it as being something in the drug, Mm. in that she's waving all these vapors in Jenna's face, and maybe that was it. So that's a physical reaction, Mm. and everything else. I actually read it as being her as yeah, being very canny. As you said, the moment when she says you wish to take her to pair bond, how do you know? It's like that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And again, so when I watch this, and listeners, I invite you to watch it next time. The fool does go over just before and says something to her which I reckon could have been a tip-off.
1: Clearly, whatever her powers, she's obviously vastly more intelligent than Gola. <laughs> and really, she outmanoeuvres everybody yes. at the end. Gola himself is, well, he's played as sort of big, loud, not very bright. Yep. As you said, he's clearly the warrior. We see him proving his strength with the arm wrestle, and then he's wrestling the other guy. I did wonder whether the reason he hasn't got rid of her is because he's scared of her power. Or is it more because he just views her as sort of a harmless freak?
0: Or some combination of the two. Yeah,
1: because he has all the stuff about how her mind's addled with her vapours.
0: And I think she does play it a bit like Claudius, and I Claudius, as long as Gola thinks that I'm stupid and just talking nonsense and no threat, he's not going to be watching me. No. And that's how she's able to do what she does at the end.
1: I would perhaps make the point her performance is maybe a little undermined by the fact that she cackles a lot.
0: That is a shame, actually, because that is my abiding memory of her character.
1: Yeah, likewise.
0: And... That's a negative one, but when I sat down and watched it properly, Mm. as I said, there's a lot of stuff in that performance and a couple of really funny lines from
1: her as Mm. well. I do like the bit where Jenna sort of collapses so she can get a look at Gola's amulet. Gola's like, be well, my love. Will she be well? And she does a, Oh, yes, whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good moment. Be well, my love. Will she be well? Oh, yes.
1: We do, at this point, get the mention of what may have happened to Lurgan. He's clearly cured Gola of, I don't know, some sort of head injury or a brain tumour or something. Yeah. I did wonder, when we first see the old man in the cells, because it's very clearly set up, he's something that's important to the plot. Yes. if Whether that's a red herring that he might have sent Lurgan down there, but... Okay. yeah, okay, um, I don't know. That. I mean, look, it's dispensed with quite quickly, but...
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, on a first viewing, I think you kind of forget that the old guy was down in the cells quite quickly. Mm. As it is, looking at it again, you're aware that, well, they're not going to cast Arthur Hewitt just to be some random 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 guy. There's obviously a reason for introducing him. Mm. He's Chekhov's old guy down in the cell. (laughs) I like these scenes for Villa, because Villa's actually really quite canny here. He's the one that realises that they haven't got Blake. He's the one Mm. that realises how to play it, to sort of not get on Golas bad side. And he's playing off the fool as well, who just gives an amazingly creepy performance.
1: Yeah, just that evil eye he's giving Villa. Yes. As soon as Villa is proclaimed as being a fool. I suppose we should then move on probably to Jenna, because she probably carries a lot of the narrative from here. A beautiful woman. (laughs) (laughs) She now, realising the situation she's in, she now turns out to her advantage and sort of starts to try and manoeuvre everybody so she can get a look at their amulets.
0: And what's really good, and it's both the way that it's written, but particularly the way Sally Navette plays it, there are moments when she's doing the whole sort of simpering maiden in distress act. Mm. You know, oh, I feel so weak. Oh, oh, you don't mind if I touch your amulet, do you, oh, great child? No. But it's intercut with her, for example, her exchange with Servalem, which is, oh, I'm busy. We both know what's going on here. And she's really in control.
1: yeah where is Travis I see you have the run of the place I am betrothed to the child and I have his protection I may still kill you I only have a minute where is Travis oh he'll be back I think not I think he already knows the location of star one and he's on his way there already really and who do you imagine told him the only person who knew Lurgan
0: and that really just reinforces that this is an act this is Jenna being manipulative. Mm. Jenna isn't actually a simply made
1: No, that scene where she's with Tara, Tara recognises her as a threat, and she really cuts through all Tara's bullshit, basically, to say, well, look, you don't want me here. I get what I want. I'm going to go. It doesn't have to end badly.
0: Yeah, I actually thought that was one of the best scenes of the episode. It mm. is very well lit. It's very well shot. And it's very clear they're both being just so canny with each other and yeah jenna calls her out not in a way to attack her but just to look i know what's going on Mm. you know i know what's going on so let's just as you say cut past it give me what i want and i'll get out of the way and you get what you want
1: yeah that's right and ultimately it's probably really only jenna's lack of knowledge of goth politics that really is her downfall.
0: Yeah, she didn't know that Gola had a brother and a father.
1: No, that's correct. And the other thing is, and look, we'll talk about Travis and serverland in a minute, it's also Jenna who works out that Travis must already have the brain print. Yes. Which, again, is another sort of really good moment for her.
0: I'll go back to Villa for a moment. We get yep. a nice call back to Spacefall with Villa doing the magic tricks. Yes. And again, Michael Keating plays Villa in such a way that he's doing all the fawning, like, into my great king's noble hand... <laughs> But the way Keating plays, it's very Mm. clearly an act, and it's Villa Mm. knowing this is how to stay on God. Ingratiate himself. Ingratiate himself, himself, yeah,
1: absolutely. I guess we've sort of mentioned Rod, so we probably are really at the moment now where Rod is revealed.
0: Uh, Yes, Blake kills two Goths to rescue Rod, who he actually hasn't met yet. Yeah, which, of course,
1: now gives us a third player who may have the brain print.
0: And Rod is set up as the civilised brother. Mm-hmm. He's obviously smarter than Gola. He's well-spoken. He befriends Blake rather than just attacking Blake.
1: Yep. It's more medieval acting with sort of a hearty laughing and back-slapping and whatever. But... Oh, yes. And Blake's magic weapon. Yes. <laughs> Gola, for his part, is obviously he's bothered that Rod is coming there. He clearly is afraid of Rod. Yes. And afraid of what might happen. And the fact that he might be a better ruler.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I made a note here. This is about the point where it started to go downhill for me. Right. Up until now, I've enjoyed the way that Jenna and Villa are playing their part. I've loved the stuff with Avon on the Liberator. Mm-hmm. the Engagements between Avon and Blake, the way it's setting up what's going on. Yep. I thought this is all really, really good. This is now the point where I could just feel it tipping into shouty medieval cliché land. Yes. It, and it's that a, is a problem. Yeah.
1: It also felt a bit rushed from here, probably that last 15 minutes.
0: There is some stuff in here that's both good and bad. I actually really enjoy Servaland just being bored and kind of bitchy. Like, oh, when well,
1: she's <laughs> watching them play the game. Yeah, yes. like, she let you win.
0: <laughs> all that sort of stuff. And that is clearly just Servland, just like, you know what, I'm bored, I'm just going to have some fun here. <laughs> and I really quite like that side of her. You also get all that really sort of obvious can you say, foreshadowing boys and girls sort of stuff. Like, he would not be afraid of her. But that said, we go down now to the cells where Blake meets the old man. We do get that wonderful line.
1: Is General right? Only pair bonding with the chief. Totally brush off. Yeah, Yeah. that's
0: great. And in fact, I've made a note here. Blake actually doesn't do much in this episode, does he? No, not
1: really. Except get angsty at the end.
0: I mean, he doesn't help Rod get into the tents. He doesn't actually... Do anything? No, I
1: mean, Rod's clearly bought... We don't see them, but Rod's clearly bought a contingent of his own men with him and stuff to take control if he succeeds in toppling Gola. There is one small production note there. When Rod comes back to get Blake and surprises him in the dungeon, Blake actually shoots him. Yes. You see the gun light up when he whips around.
0: (laughs) A pro-Gola moment I'll mention here. Gola, look, he's not bright. No. But he's smart enough to know that Tara might want to kill him and doesn't accept a drink offer.
1: True. I guess that's another medieval thing because you do see a couple of other times. You see the fool taste the wine yes. and then he does a little bit where after Gola's had a sip <laughs> and then turns around and laughs at him.
0: <laughs> and at the same time that Gola gets that one moment of being slightly canny, he's then you know, yep. laughing uproariously at a stupid villa trick. So... <laughs>
1: We're now reeling into the last 15 minutes of the episode where Rod arrives, clearly, and it's a reveal that this is all a plot by Tara.
0: Interestingly, though, when Gobler says to Tara, why have you done this? Hmm. She does the whole, you were going to take it outside of the pair bond. Now, clearly Rod's been invited way before Jenna got on the scene.
1: So that's just Tara playing politics. Uh, of course, yeah. The inference seems to be that not only has she summoned Rod, she's also perhaps doped all the guards And everything, so he can bring his men in. Because there's that moment there, Blake and Rod come up to the throne room, and it's sort of, I thought you said that he'll be asleep.
0: Okay, no, I missed that. I don't know whether
1: that was sort of meant to be that she's probably pushed it along a bit further. Clearly, I mean, she's very confident Rod will win the fight. She's obviously got a contingency plan if he doesn't, but... Did you get the feeling that contingency plan was going to be used on whoever won the fight? I think so, yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) And now, of course, we get to the duel. Look... Um, this sort of thing is very hard to do on television convincingly I think I know Stuart Fell blocked the fight out and he is the fight choreographer for this but, yes, it is lots of grunting and jerking on the chain. Of course, they do the sweep of the table.
0: <laughs> that is so bad because it is so obvious that they've been told to clear the table. Yes, and, okay. and the one plate yeah, it doesn't, doesn't come go. come back for a
1: final pass to it get takes the plate they missed. two
0: extra goes to get that final plate. Yeah, yeah. that's really bad. Look, yeah. you're right. This is a part of science fiction, particularly of this era. They've obviously gone to the effort to try and make it a bit different they've got the chain and the glove. Yeah. All that sort of thing. Look, I was reminded about eight years later of that very early episode of Star Trek The Next Generation Code of Honor. Oh, they, oh they, yeah. They have a very, very, <laughs> self, yeah. you know, you will have no treaty, no vaccine, and no Lieutenant Yar. <laughs> For fans of that episode, you'll get that reference.
1: Yeah, I did notice, actually, in the staging of the fight, Rod very early on, actually seems to have a very clear opportunity to kill Gola. He's got him down on the ground next to Jenna mm. with the thing at his throat. So I don't know whether that's part of the fight that just didn't work properly. Yeah, maybe. And they've just, you know, just, just keep going. It's okay. Because he then lets Gola back up. But
0: Look, I got the real feeling that this was a fight where they had set everything up and they had one take.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: At that point, Tara basically moves into being exposition lady. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I had the note here, we now really see obsessive Blake again, because he is totally unfazed by the fact that he's just watched two people be murdered in front of him.
0: Yeah, he's just watched a fairly graphic fight. His mate who's helped him you know,
1: get out he, of here. He killed the other guy poisoned. Yep. And then it's immediately about, well, find a brain print!
0: Yeah, and the fact that Tara's now in control and he just doesn't care, like he's not looking after himself. You compare the way Jenner and Villa played, okay, what's the lie of the land, how do we ingratiate ourselves? Mm. And Blake just doesn't even think about that.
1: No, and Jenna is, I think, you know, all the, she obviously doesn't want a pair bond with Gola, but there is that moment of concern when he's poisoned. Mm. Yeah, it
0: is all about the brain print now. But we should point out here, earlier in the episode, Jenna has confirmed that Gola doesn't have it on his mm. amulet. This is the moment where we realise Rod's a brother and he doesn't have it on his
1: amulet. So it's like, where is this thing? Mm. Yes, exposition machine Tara <laughs> gives us the final stage to go down and get the other print. You notice, though, despite saying this is the true Charles, and whatever, she doesn't set him free. No. She she just puts the cloak on and goes and sits in the throne herself. No, no. And then sort of, you know, more maniacal cackling.
0: No, she is very happy to acknowledge the true Charles and be his legitimate heir. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't actually want to restore him to the throne. No.
1: And now we're clearly right at the end of the episode where we get the secret of Star 1. Yes, which
0: starts with Blake Shouting at a dying old man. The brain print gone. You seek the talisman, the brain of the healer. The man with the eye patch took it.
1: Travis. Old man. Old man, Lurgan. The healer. Did he talk
0: of Star One? Did he speak to you of anything?
1: Yes. Really, as soon as he realises he's potentially lost, he gets really quite angsty. He does,
0: but... We find out the brain is gone. The man with the eye patch took it. Mm. And we then get the little coder with the trigger word.
1: Yeah. <laughs> a fool knows everything and
0: nothing. The location of Star 1 is at grid reference <laughs> C17320 in the 11th Sector. <laughs> yes, I did do that from memory. That's yeah. <laughs> very
1: sad. It is a little bit <laughs> <hard>. <laughs> Did he say anything to you, Blake? No. He said a fool knows everything and nothing.
0: A fool knows everything and nothing. location of Star One is at grid reference C
1: 17320 in the 11th sector.
0: From Alan Pryor's point of view, he started the episode with the characters knowing... Lurgan's brain print was on Goth and it was associated with the tribal chief. By the end of this episode they now know the location of Star Mm 1. So from an arc point of view Alan Pryor has got the characters from where they were to where they need Need to be be. for the start of Star 1. So in that sense mission accomplished.
1: For sure. And look there are some nice little touches even here at the end. He's taken the time to write a death lament for the fool to sing.
0: Yep, And that's a really nice moment as well. You've got Gola and Rod who depose their father. You've got Tara who Talks up her father, but doesn't go and rescue him. You know, this guy's just sort of been abandoned by all his family. Yep. But what I assume was his fool mm. is the one who's like, "No, this was a great man. This was my friend, yeah. and I'm going to remember him." Mm. I actually, think that's a really nice moment.
1: It is. Who
0: is the keeper? Leave him. Let my master die in peace. Who is the keeper? I sing you the tents, my master.
1: We still have the final scene on the Liberator and I am going to make the point here there's clearly been a really bad edit or something here because it seems to be missing a line or two of dialogue. The inference seems to be that Kelly's calling them because they've picked up the suit ships. Yeah. And when they get back on the ship, Avon does the thing, I was about to leave you. And, you know, they're moving to evade. Well, it doesn't actually say evade what.
0: Yes, I think we have to make the assumption there, absolutely.
1: Either Travis alerted them when he got off the planet or that initial message was, hey, look, come here.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> Well, we did say we would circle back to Servalan and Travis... ...because we haven't really mentioned them much during the episode. Now, my notes for this actually start with a series of questions. Okay. Which is, how did Servalan and Travis get there before the Liberator?
0: So, when I spoke earlier about how the arc plot works in a narrative term... And look, we, we, (laughs) we we said that they got from point A to point B. Yes. And that was accomplished. I also said at the start that the way in which they do it and the details of it don't work... And that's clearly an example. I mean, you can make the head cannon that maybe Blake got waylaid by some patrols. Or, that's yeah, the thing. Or he had another adventure, Halle Big Finish.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, because Silverland and Travis have obviously been there for at least a few days.
0: Yes, they've managed to ingratiate themselves with Nola yep. or that sort of thing. A point there as well, given that Avon thinks that he's just killed Travis, mm. and that the audience has certainly led to sort of maybe not believe, but suspend his belief and go, oh baby, Travis has been killed. There's no fanfare when Travis walks in.
1: There's no, no. like, oh, Travis is still alive. it's just He's just dead. Yeah, that's true actually. I didn't really notice that. The next question I had really was sort of well, what has transpired that Travis and Serval are working together again? Because really, at the end of Gambit she put a bomb in his arm. His arm actually didn't work. So, so look,
0: I don't think it's beyond the realms of headcanon that having been left helpless, partially paralysed, but mm. with that info, Travis would have sought out Servaland and gone, look, I've got what you want, I need your help to get out of here, so, yep. because Travis came in on the Bari, don't forget. Mm. So, presumably, as part of following Dockley, Travis has had mm. to catch the Bari to Freedom City, mm. so therefore his pursuit ship isn't there, he's been disabled, so maybe he just says, well, the only way I'm going to get out of here is with Servaland's help, mm. right. and I'll trade the knowledge of the location of Star 1 for that, and Servaland's like, well... I'm not going to say no. No. But you're right. This is an example of where you need the headcanon to get you there.
1: Yes, because, I mean, he obviously must have stayed nearby at the end of Gambit and heard what Dockley said. Either that or he and Servaland have just gone and found the freighter Dockley got on (laughs) and and frog marched him off it and interrogated him.
0: I always took it as being fairly straightforward that Travis overheard what he said. Yeah.
1: Well, that's a nicer ending anyway.
0: That's true. Interestingly here, Servaland is operating very clearly for the Federation, not herself. And it's really sort of implied here that the location of Star 1 is actually bigger than Servaland.
1: Mm. Yeah. To
0: the point where it's Travis trying to tempt her. Like, True. who can
1: control? Or well, then having said that, he must surely know that she is not going to share that information or that power with anybody. I sort of read it really. It is Travis's, I think, final attempt to regain his position. It actually seems to be played, really, that he's basically propositioning up.
0: Well, so I had a couple of points on this. First of all, I think there's a very deliberate attempt to mirror the Avon-Blake conversation with the Travis Servlan mm, conversation. Yeah. And secondly, yeah, I noted, I don't know which way to read it. Is Travis actually trying to use his sexuality to mm. manipulate Servlan, or is he deliberately trying to be a bit thick? And sort of lull her into a false sense of curiosity, like, you know, this guy's really dumb, he tried to proposition me, he's no threat. So that when he pisses off to his pursuit ship, she isn't thinking, what's going on here? I've kind of wondered if maybe Travis is being very clever there. Although I mean I might, might be being very generous. You will soon know, and when you do, you could control the Federation. You and I.
1: Don't be ridiculous, Travis.
0: Look... Star One is the computer control centre. It controls the climate on more than 200 worlds. Communications, security,
1: food production, it controls them all. It is the key to our very lives. Think of all that power. You can see why the Council themselves don't know where Star One is. In the wrong hands...
0: Yes, but in the right hands. Yours and mine.
1: Be very careful you don't overreach yourself, Travis.
0: There'll come a time when such ideas seem unambitious. One day serve
1: Yes? What are you talking about, Travis? It's interesting because when she just totally cuts him down, what on earth are you talking about? He does have that moment where he is clearly stung by the fact that she's rejected him, basically.
0: And interestingly as well, Servalan seems to want to be the keeper of the secret, mm. not the controller of Star It's One.
1: presented very much like that. We probably do also have to raise the point at, at what stage Travis actually obtains the brain print, because he must already have it in the scene where he's trying to win Servland over, unless he goes and grabs it on the way to the ship. So he really is just trying to bargain with her, basically. And
0: if he really genuinely wanted Serverland to come with him, mm. he would have said, I have the brain print. So I think that the best way to read it is him trying to lull Serverland into a false sense of security. Mm. She doesn't know he has the brain print. She thinks no. he's a bit of a fool, and he can just
1: bugger yeah, off. Yeah, he is lying to her, basically, to try and put her in a position where she has to make a bargain with him. Yep. Yeah. I will say, though, and we talked about Tara outmanoeuvring everybody, Travis ultimately really outwits everyone here as well. Yes. He discovers where the print is and recovers it without anybody knowing, and gets off the planet with it.
0: Yeah, which again comes back to what we've said. Travis, when he's written at his best, is a very, very capable operator, Mm. and that is seen here.
1: Yeah, Blake really only succeeds because Lurgan left a file safe, or a backup. Yeah, That is just dumb luck on Blake's part that he gets the secret.
0: Yeah, and for a moment there, it looks as though he's not going to, you know, all no. President Travis.
1: And they do play it very much, as that? You know, Villa does the thing about we might as well just stay here and shut the door. Uh, yes. I did have the query of what happened to Lurgan, but I think that's uh, he is gone from us. Yes, I just reckon he's gone off to yeah, another planet. And... Yeah, he, he's basically gone to lay low somewhere else. Much yeah. like Dockley did. Yeah. I will make the final note I had here. We did talk about Jacqueline Pierce. And her scenes with Gola and with Jenna. I will say, she is really good in oh, this. Oh, yes. change she's really only in three scenes. The scene with Gola is great, particularly considering it's all bluff. Because at that point, she's alone on the planet. Yeah. It is entirely bluff.
0: You are a friend of Lurgan's, or I... What? I'd send you down below. You lay a finger on me, and the Federation battle fleets will blast you to ashes you and all your tents we are a long way under the ground do not be sure any bomb would reach us there is not a hole deep enough for you to hide in
1: and it's a very good scene she has with sally Nevet because Servaland is clearly bothered by the idea that travis has shafted her. yes but she recovers almost instantly then she has that great moment where she thinks how educational it'll be for Jenna to spend the rest of her life with Gola.
0: But again, that's really good bluff from Serverlane because Hmm. Servalane doesn't have a choice. No. Like, can't do anything else, so she's making it seem like this inevitable decision that's actually what I wanted after
1: all. Yes, and even at the start when Jenna comes in and says, well, where's Travis? Oh, he'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much all the notes I had. I mean, we really aren't very much now at a point we're set up for the finale next week.
0: Yeah, no, we've exhausted my notes
1: couple of quick production notes perhaps before we go into the regular segments i think it's a fairly well-known anecdote that sally nevette and bruce purchase really hit it off she was looking to go back and continue her studies at uni and he really you know encouraged her yes we did mention Stuart fell was the fight choreographer for the infamous duel he also Taught Deniusa and Michael Keating some of the magic tricks right. that they did. The thing with you know Michael Keating throws the turnip or whatever it is up and then catches it on yep. the end of the knife. That sort of stuff. So he actually had, even though you don't see him on screen, he did have quite a big part in this. But that's pretty much all I've got. So I think it's now on to our regular segments. <laughs> The first of our regular segments is, of course, guest cast. Yes. Our first guest cast member is Bruce Purchase yes. as dollar Now, we'll start off by saying he is this episode's Rumpol Link. Yes, Rumpole and the Heavy Brigade. A very early Rumpole. Yeah, it is. First season. Yeah. He was born in New Zealand, and he has a lot of work from sort of the mid-60s to around about probably late 90s, 2000. He's in a couple of missing episodes of Callan, The Fight Against Slavery, a couple of those TV Shakespeare's they did in the late 70s.
0: Edward VII and I, Claudius, so a lot of prestige dramas in this. The
1: first Church was as well. The genre stuff, he's in Tripods, Doomwatch, The Final Quatermass, The New Avengers. He's also got quite a memorable performance in the bill. It's one of the early episodes. He's the guy who goes into the DHSS with the shotgun and gets talked down by Reg Hollis. That's right. That's him as well.
0: Yeah, so look, it was really interesting when we went through uh, notes here just how many really big prestige dramas Mm. he was in, considering he's kind of known as that shouty guy, not least in Phantom, of course, because of his Doctor Who appearance.
1: Yes, well, of course, we do have to mention the pirate captain. Yes. (laughs) He did do a lot of stage work, and he did a stint with the RSC. And he was also a founding actor at the National Theatre with Olivier. So, look,
0: when he was allowed to play subtle, mm. you can see that he's a very capable actor. Yeah,
1: it's just obvious that he
0: was being told bigger Bruce, bigger Bruce.
1: And it's probably tainted because, of course, his big genre thing is the pirate captain, and there he is just so over the top. Yeah, but away from acting, he was actually an exhibited artist as well. Apparently, okay, I didn't know that. Mm. So there you go. Sean
0: Curry plays Rod. Now, he was in Star Wars. He was in The Empire Strikes Back as a rebel commander on Hoth. There you go. He was in To the Man of Bourne, Zed Cars, Up Pompeii, oh, yeah. uh, The Professionals, yes. The New Adventures of Robin Hood, along with a lot of the Blake Seven cast.
1: Yeah, he's in a lot of stuff. He's about 40 years, I think, from the mid-60s. He got a lot of
0: just one-off minor roles in stuff like London's Burning the Bill. Yep. M- not recurring stuff, but just obviously being part of a regular troupe that directors would just call upon yep. to just fill act as he was in work pretty consistently but rarely in a lead
1: yeah I mean I had other notes like he's in A Bridge Too Far which is a World War II film he's in Tom Grattan's War which is a thing I must not quite enjoy when I was a kid he was in Poldark Minder he's in Lovejoy Wycliffe House of Elliot so I think he just was one of those long term jobbing actors yeah but yeah he is in a lot of stuff staying within the royal family <laughs> we then come to Frida Jackson this is actually one of her very last roles yes she was primarily a stage actress and had a very long theatre career, but did a lot of movies and TV stuff between that. I mean, she was working before the Second World War.
0: Yeah, well, I got down here that she did Henry V in 1944.
1: Yeah, and I think her last role was in Clash of the Titans couple of genre shout-outs. She's in Brides of Dracula for Hammer. She's in Randall and Hopkirk. For fans of Adam Adamant Lives, she plays Margot Kane, which is the first sort of villain he meets when he awakens in the 1960s. Oh, okay. In the very first episode, so...
0: I also noted here that she was in A Tale of Two Cities in 1958, and later on in the old Curiosity Shop, which were both quite big at that time. Mm-hmm.
1: And some of her early work was at the Northampton Repertory Theatre, where she actually spent a season or two working with Errol Flynn when he was just starting out. Well, there you go. Yes, and apparently said he was a very naughty, naughty man. <laughs> <laughs> a
0: couple of notes here on The Fool, played by Sengiz Sena. Yep. Interestingly enough, he actually played The Fool in King Lear in yes. 1976.
1: Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of TV and movie credits. No,
0: he doesn't. Again, another one that occurs a lot in this segment is the On Eden line.
1: That's sort of becoming a trope like Rumpole, I think, almost.
0: (laughs) And he had a small role in The Curse of the Pink Panther.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. He had a long career in the theatre as an actor. He was a mime. He was a musician. I think he did movement and choreography as well. A lot of stuff in his later life was with an outfit called the Grand Union Orchestra, which is a musical theatre company and orchestra that presented a lot of shows containing an array of multicultural performers musicians and yeah he died not all that long ago i don't think okay and i will actually just reiterate again i thought he was really great in this and one moment that did make me laugh is where gola has just finished wrestling the guy and clearly either killed him or knocked him out and they dragged the body out and he's sitting on the body paddling (laughs) (laughs) yeah he was really really good he was
0: i'll cover briefly arthur hewitt who plays the old man because he's obviously got a very minor role in this. Arthur Hewitt has 149 credits on IMDb. Yeah, He was 72 at the time this was made, mm. and went on to do uh, two Doctor Whos after this, Yes, being, of course, State of Decay and Terror of the Vervoids. He was also around this time in James and the Giant Peach, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen. Oh, yeah. He played one of the Prime Ministers, the Earl of Aberdeen, in Edward VII. He was in 13 of the ITV plays for the week, back in the 50s right. and 60s. And that's a pretty good spread of just, as I say... 149 credits spread over a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, again, he's in a lot of well-remembered series. One very notable role, he's in the first season of Blackadder. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury at the start of the episode. Yes. He's the one telling William Russell that his bottom is about to be pricked for all eternity by little Thor.: That's right, yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm disappointed myself for missing that one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we, we move on probably now to the minor roles, and really the only other speaking part, goth is the patrol leader, which is played by Ron Tarr. Now, he is a background performer in a lot of stuff, and it sort of, I think, progressed to bigger parts. He's probably best known for a recurring role in EastEnders Mm -hmm. over several years. Now, that, of course, meant that he got to be in dimensions in time.
0: So Dimensions in Time, of course, was a Children in Need special in 1993 that had a Doctor Who EastEnders crossover.
1: Yes. At the end of Part 1, there was a phoning bit where you could ring in and make a donation to Children in Need and you got to choose which of two EastEnders characters would help the Doctor at the start of the next episode. Yes. Now, unfortunately, Big Ron <laughs> didn't win. His little segment was filmed, which I think is basically him pushing the Rani over or something. Yeah. But,
0: <laughs> well, I assume it's the same as the...
1: the- Gilded who comes in yeah. and go, you leave her alone! Yeah, <laughs> Whatever
0: it is. And we said that we would have a complete list of all Doctor Who crossovers in Blake 7. Yes. Rontar was a prisoner in the Destiny of the Daleks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we said he was a background performer. He is in a lot of stuff again. He's in three Blake 7s. He was the big guy in Deliverance who looms over Jenna yeah. when she comes out of the tent. Yep, and We will see him in a later episode. Because of his size, I think he did a lot of heavies, bounces, security men, those sort of things.
0: And he played an animal in the goodies episode, Animals Are People ah, too. Ah,
1: yes, yes. He's one of the bullocks, I think. He is, yes. Yes. Ah, very good. Finally, just to round this segment off, we mentioned in Hostage that there were some really quite well-known stuntmen taking part in that. And some of them do return here. Probably the best two known are Fred and Dennis Powell, mm-hmm. best known as Nosha and Dinny Powell. They were really well-known UK stuntmen and small part actors. They were also from that era where they were sort of colourful characters as well. Right. Nosher particularly. Nosher's nickname comes from the fact he ate a lot as a child, so he loved his nosh. Right. <laughs> they were both professional boxers, and then they then went into stunt work afterwards. Nosher, I think, had a slightly better boxing career than Dinny. He was ranked in Britain at one point, and he was a sparring partner for people like Ali, so he was that good. He did a lot of security work, and one of his stories is he apparently once refused the Cray Brothers' entry to one of the clubs he was working. Okay. Yes. But yeah, between them, he and Dinny Powell are in something like 14 or 15 Bond films. They're in Superman. They're in Raiders. Both do parts in Star Wars, Aliens. Yep. And actually, Nosh's sons both stuntmen as well. Okay. And Greg Powell in particular, I think he's now quite sought after. Moving on, quick mention of Paul Weston. He's another well-known UK stuntman. He also did Bond films. He did Superman 1 and 2, Raiders, Jedi, Aliens, and that's just some of his films. He's done heaps of TV series as well. Mm -hmm. And finally, look, we did mention Stuart Fell earlier. He is obviously best known probably to genre fans for his multiple appearances in Doctor Who. Yes, particularly
0: Alpha Centauri. Yes,
1: and link for Joe Grant. Yes. He's actually in 12, like, seven episodes, and we've seen him a couple of times. We saw him fall off a cupboard in Mission to Destiny. That's right. Stefan Grief hit him in the face in Project Avalon. Yes. So, again, he worked on a lot of really big movies, but he, probably more interestingly, he was a professional jester away from film work. He was a juggler, a magician, a stilt walker, a professional fire eater. He worked under the name Tarot. He used to be hired for corporate gigs and renaissance fairs and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, he had a whole other career away from the stunt work.
0: Appropriate use here, then,
1: yeah, very much so. And yes, as we mentioned, he did teach Michael Keating and Sid sana all the little magic tricks and stuff that they did. So, there you go, that's quite an exhaustive list. But they did use a bit, yes, yes. <laughs> so, look, we'll move on. And the next one we have is it was the 1970s. So, I've got two notes for this, yep. Firstly, just
0: the CSO or blue screen when they go down into the test. Ah, yes, that is a very 1970s effect, that yes. doesn't hold up. But the other thing is, we mentioned it earlier the references to some of the technology as being magic. Yep. That's, of course, a reference to Clark's Law, named after Arthur yep. C. Clark, that any sufficiently advanced technologies in distinguishable from magic. Yes. That was a bit of a thing in the 1970s.
1: Yes, which probably leads to the couple of points I had, which were, I think that regressed society is really a bit of an SF trope. Mm. And yes, we do get the bits about Lurgan's medicine being real magic, (laughs) and Blake's magic weapon that men fall from. Yes. That sort of thing. Gola, and presumably the other Goths, they clearly at least know about things like spaceships and bombs and that sort of stuff, but... I live as my ancestors have lived. We are a warrior people! We fight to live, and we live to fight. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, look, we'll move away from that now and get into the Liberator database. So, look, the couple of notes I had for this, Goth is clearly outside the Federation. Yes. Golar knows that the Federation exists and that submitting to them equals slavery.
0: And presumably he's learned that from Lurkin as well. Yes. And of course it makes sense if Lurkin's trying to escape the Federation, he would go to a non-aligned
1: planet. Yes. We do get the information about Goth has a high sulphur content in the atmosphere yes. uh, that eventually will rot your lungs, and we see the guards wearing face masks when they're out on the surface.
0: Which again implies that at some point this must have been a colony. Yes. They've hardly evolved there and not been able to... And
1: I guess, given the sulphur in the atmosphere, life there would have been very difficult, so it's probably... No big stretch that they would have maybe gone backwards.
0: Maybe it's an old prison colony.
1: Yeah, could well be. And we do say, yes, the tents are underground.
0: One important point to add to the database is, of course, we now know the location of Star 1.
1: Indeed.
0: C17320 in the 11th Sector. <laughs>
1: uh, and Villa does say that the
0: 11th Sector is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I'd always taken it. I have no idea where I got this from, that the sectors were sort of concentric circles and mm. the further you got from Earth, the further the circle. Yep. So, so this is like the outer ring of the under yeah.
1: Either that or it's sort of a block and you've just got a... Let's be honest.
0: The production team didn't know either. No,
1: indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. We did mention that Pursuit Ship 4 is named as Travis's ship at the end of Trial, so that was a nice touch. We get told here that Serverland's ship is a modified Class 1 Pursuit ship. Yep. Yep. And we do, just back to the point about we know where Star 1 is, we also do get the sort of info dump that it's the computer control for all the federated worlds.
0: Yeah, look, not only do we do that, but it really is built up here just how powerful it Mm. is, what a big deal it is. So so there is some good foreshadowing there, I would assume probably dropped in by Chris Boucher.
1: I, I think so. Plus we also get the note that using Liberator's extra range detectors puts a big strain on the energy banks. True. So that's all I had, which I guess now brings us to what happened next. Well, I don't have a lot for this, because I think in terms of what happens next to the
0: Ark, that's obviously the plot of the next episode. And in terms of the Goths, I assume that once Servalane goes, they never hear from them ever again. They no. just get on with being Goths.
1: No, and Tara, obviously, is now running the place.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. So, our final main segment is... What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Well, it's
1: not really an Avon episode.
0: It's not, but he's got a couple of very nice ones. The, uh, I have no objection to shooting him in the back.
1: Yes. And the one about, what did you want me to do? Give him the sporting chance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But there's one line that I think we both made note of, and that's actually not an Avon line, but a villa line. Yes.
1: I don't like the dark. I like to see what I'm scared of.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, a couple of quite witty lines in here. So, look. An episode that definitely went up in my estimation. I'm very glad I watched this for the podcast. Yep. Where it's good, it actually is very good. Some nice moments, some nice performances. Yes, it is all wrapped around a lot of medieval shouty silliness. <laughs> and that does, I think, detract from its reputation.
1: Yeah. That's fair. I'm certainly glad I rewatched it. And as I said at the top, I got a lot more out of it this time than I did previously. Oh, good. Which, of course, now brings us to the end of the episode and our Player of the Week. Yes. We'll start with you. Who's your player of the week, Dave? I'm giving this to Sally Navette. Snap. Yeah, I thought that might be the case.
0: (laughs) There have been a number of episodes across the last two seasons where we've praised Sally Mm Navette, but also noted more often than not she doesn't get to do anything. Given the chance to do something here, she takes it with both hands and runs with it. She does manipulative, she does funny, she does subtle, she does crafty. Mm. She's a really, really good actress and a really, really good performance. And I just think she dominated this episode. It's really good to see that happen.
1: She did. I did have the note it's maybe a bit sad that when she does get an episode centred on her, her role is flirting with a pseudo-viking. But uh... (laughs) Yeah, that is a shame. But yeah, look, we do get to see her intelligence and her now- as she ingratiates her way with Gola and then sort of manipulates her way to get into the Brain Prince.
0: The scene with her and Servalane is great. The scene with her and Tara is probably the best of the episode. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, yep. yeah, look, I wasn't shocked we got a snap
1: there. No. I did have a couple of honourable mentions. I'll mention St. Giussana again. Yep. And I'm also going to mention Jacqueline Pierce again.
0: Look, both of them did a really good yep. job with very small parts. Not big enough, I think, to be Player of the Week. No. But, yeah, very much worthy of a mention.
1: So there you go. So,
0: that's our conversation about The Keeper, and we'll be back next time with the season finale. So, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Star 1. Jenna.
1: 189, standard by 10. And on with luck to Star 1.
0: Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. I'm scared of...